0: Welcome to the collective voice of health IT, a Weedy podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the collective voice of health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous Payments, Z E L I S. Zealous's mission. Is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. And I also serve as the communication committee chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I, which means the Work Group for Electronic Data Interchange. So uh, what the heck is WEDI? Uh, we've got Michael McNutt, who actually works for Weedy, producer of this show in the virtual studio. Michael, how many episodes have we done? This will be number 17. Number 17. And, and in all that time, has anybody... Explain to us or our listeners what this Weedy thing
0: is. No, and I hope I'd know more so than anyone else, especially our guests, except for today's guests, but I have a pretty good <laughs> grasp as to what Weedy is. Okay, well, tell us, what is Weedy? I mean, it, it's really kind of looking at it, the word collaboration. You know, we're, we're a collective, a nonprofit association focusing on uh, the clinical and administrative data uh, that circulates throughout healthcare. So what we do through our education, through our various different initiatives is attempt to help the efficiency of healthcare data in every mean necessary from the payer provider, payer pro- provider payer, including all the vendors and all the other stakeholders that we have. So when it comes to data in the United States, healthcare data, Weedy is at the center of it.
1: That's Michael, you are a walking, talking elevator speech where we're going to record what you just said and just play it back when anybody ever asked me that. That's, that was really something <laughs> you've been
0: practicing, right? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of recruiting for our next event, February 23rd and 24th, the quest for health equity. So go to Weedy.org and check it out. Save the date.
1: Good. Very good. So exciting things happening at Weeding, and we are very excited to have in our virtual studio today our guest, Jay Eisenstock, outgoing chair of the Weedy Board of Directors, now running his own consultant firm. Uh, Jay, we are very excited to talk with you today. It's an honor to have you on our show.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad that Michael gave us uh, who Weedy is. I've been wondering about that for a while, so that's good. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. Good. So Jay, who's been
1: chair of Weedy for two years, he's finally been brought up to speed. Jay, uh, I want to start. It's it's always interesting uh, to hear on this show the background stories of the healthcare leaders we have come and to talk to us. How they you know ended up in in healthcare and in their positions. And I think so often we find that 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 the leaders take lessons from other periods of their life, other experiences they've had outside the healthcare industry, and they bring it in and they apply it to healthcare. So um, let's talk about you. Uh, how did you get into healthcare? Because I, I believe uh, that you wanted to be a photographer uh, originally, and that's probably what you went to undergraduate for, school for. So, give us a little uh, story there. What, what's the story?
2: Yeah, so that that's true, Matthew. That uh, totally by accident I ended up in this in this profession. But when I was in high school and wild and crazy, I thought it would be fun to be a professional photographer. I don't think my father thought that was true at the time, but you know, what the heck. So I went to school at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York, which uh, at that time was the preeminent school for professional photography. And yes, I did get a a degree in professional photography. And then I worked actually as a photographer, commercial photographer for a little bit and then realized um, I needed to do something to make money. You know, it was fun, but uh, it really wasn't a a way to... uh, to sustain myself and, and and my family. So uh, I decided to uh, to get an MBA. I thought that getting a business degree would, would help me uh, with different employment prospects. And I worked uh, during the day and then I uh, went to school at night to get my MBA. And then while I was working towards my MBA, which is true of probably all business programs, uh, I had a computer class and I, I really enjoyed it. And to the Point that I continued to take more and more computer classes, and then at the end of, uh, of my, my stint in, uh, in MBA school, um, I was just about to get a dual degree in uh, an MBA and a Master of Science in Computer Science, and I stopped because my whole reason for going to school was to be able to, to get a better, better job. So that's what I did. I, uh, I stopped short of getting that dual degree. Uh, But it worked out to get an MBA. And then from there, I went to work for a company uh, called EDS, Electronic Data Systems. And uh, people may remember Ross Perot, uh, who ran for president, amongst many other things. And he had this company called EDS. And EDS was in the business of um, being an outsourcer in those days for mostly government entities, large insurance companies, a lot of health plans. And when they say outsource, that meant, uh, the entire IT department would, uh, would go over EDS. So EDS would assume all the systems, all the people and so on. And, uh, because EDS was mostly, of uh, military people, a few of us that weren't obviously, um, you know, you started off in, in boot camp, and, um, I started off in boot camp and that trained me to become a computer programmer. So I worked as a programmer and um, decided pretty quickly that, gee, that's fun, but I really didn't want to be a programmer as a new career. I did like the management part. I did like uh, working with customers and, and that kind of thing. So that's the that's the path I took and traveled all over the country doing various things And I did work for many of the healthcare customers that that EDS had during that time. And then, um, and you'll see this intersection, I guess, of my career as as things happen, but um, EDS was acquired by General Motors. And um, one of the, at some point shortly thereafter, um, EDS looked to acquire uh, McDonnell Douglas's information technology organization. And primarily, they, they wanted it because they had all these um, systems and people that could support manufacturing, which obviously General Motors was. And I was working in the uh, the healthcare um, business unit at EDS at the time. And um, what came along with McDonnell Douglas was some other miscellaneous stuff. And one thing was some healthcare. And I remember um, my boss calling me into his office and said, um... We have this company that uh, we have a contract with that came with McDonnell Douglas called NEIC in um, Secaucus, New Jersey, and uh, you need to go there and, and run that thing. And uh, for those of you that don't know, NEIC was a precursor of what became MDR and WebMD and now Change healthcare. And um, what's interesting is some of the people that were at that original NEIC, um, I, you know, Caught up with many years later, changed healthcare. I think a lot of them have um, have retired, but that was uh, the very long way that I ended up in my first foray into uh, into healthcare, healthcare, healthcare information technology. Very, very good, uh, Jay. And and you're the uh,
1: outgoing chair of the board at Weedy, Um, Mm -hmm. and and Weedy it means work group for electronic data interchange uh, tell us a little bit about what weedy is and maybe give us the, a little taste of its origin story how did how did weedy come about why, why is it called a work group if it's this huge member organization that uh, uh, that that spans all all sectors of the industry
2: yeah I think that what's interesting about that Matthew is that the the, the folks in the very early days had a lot of, of foresight you know they they Let's let's go back in time, and, and there were several health uh, organizations, primarily the uh, health plans. Travelers was probably the most influential in the days, and this was kind of right before HIPAA um, was was starting to to take shape. And we hadn't become uh, legislation yet, but it was starting to take shape. And what if you go back to to my background in NEIC, Really, that was about claims. All the health plans were were running their claims through NEIC. And what they realized is that there, there had to be a better way to do that. So um, travelers, I think led by travelers, if I'm not mistaken, pulled uh, a small group of health plans together and said, you know, what can we do to collaborate? What can we do to make this work better? And that planted the seed. And then when it became, you know, I'm going to say now, all these years later, but, but evident that, you know, we're going to have this thing called HIPAA uh, they went to um, Health and Human Services, Dr. Sullivan at the time, um, some folks knew Dr. Sullivan, and they said to him that, you know, as this thing moves forward, the way that it's going to work is if you have the the support and the collaboration specifically amongst the plans at that time. And so that was a seed. That was a seed that got this thing that we now know as Weedy going. And I think, again, um, as they, the first board chair coming into Weedy at that time, which I believe was Lee Barrett, they looked at that and they said, you know, we need to expand this. It's, you know, as Michael said in the outset, who we are today is deeply tied to our roots, which is, if it was going to work, it had to be more of a collaboration, not only amongst the plans, but certainly amongst the providers, amongst all the other entities that are involved in in the healthcare ecosystem. So that's how it started, and and why they named it Work Group. I I don't know the answer to that. Um, maybe because it sounded catchy at the time, or or they wanted to not you know imply that it was something you know more formal or bigger than it was, but something that that implied more of a collaborative effort.
1: Very good, very good. And and when I think of Work Group, I just think of a, a bunch of people in a room working all night or at least a few people in a room that are are trying to tackle a specific uh, problem. And I I feel like that has carried through to uh, Weedy today because like you said, we've got people on the provider side, the vendor side, the health plan side, the government side, and they all get in a room and and they actually work on very, sometimes very specific issues just to make the the claims process move uh, a bit more smoothly. Um, and it, it's not a, it's not a necessarily a policy issue. It's not necessarily a political issue. It's simply to get fixing um, uh, the, the, the how the sausage is made, so that the sausage is made more efficiently. I don't I don't know if I'm uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm describing it properly. Is is that? Would you
2: say that? Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And I think the other thing that I, I I remind people about is one of the ways that Weedy is very unique. In our industry, it's really the only organization, if you think about it, which obviously is is, is a not-for-profit, which makes it work. But where our membership truly goes across the industry, think about it. We have we have health plans. We have providers. But we have all the major associations, the ADA, the AMA, AHIP. We have um, all the major vendors. We have government agencies. We have CMS. We have ONC. And if you think about that collection – uh, of people in the industry that really are the heart and soul of this industry, that, that's, that's pretty significant, that we are able to pull that together and act as the convener that we are.
1: And, and not just the convener, but where Weedy is actually mentioned in HIPAA, if I'm not mistaken, right, of, of, to be an advisor to the secretary? So Exactly. So what, what does that role look like, or, or how has Weedy used that role in the past?
2: So you know one thing I, I think that's good to to bring that up, Matthew, because what's important is is we does not lobby. It, 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 that's in our in our charter and and it's very clear that we do not do that. we We are an advisor, and I think that word is important here., uh, we're not advocate. We're advocating, but but we're not lobbying. Um, and And having that access, you know signed in legislation gives us the opportunity, to be able to take these comments from our constituents and present it to the government entities who are or ultimately the decision makers. And, and you know, oftentimes when regulation is conceived um, and the sausage making, I think as you pointed out, uh, maybe in a different context, um, having the ability to gather information from this collection of, of people across the industry is significant and, and this give us essentially being in the legislation the license to do that that's why i look at
1: it yeah, that's terrific so before we go uh to break i want to uh, bring us from the past right to the present um you're outgoing you you uh, outgoing uh chair of the board you've been um overseeing uh, weedy for the last two years what what did, what got you most excited about weedy's work or what part of weedy's work got you most excited or, or what are you most excited about weedy looking forward
2: so that's a great question, because obviously, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more, I mean, 2020 has been a very unique year, not only for Weedy, but everyone. And um, one of the things that we started to do a couple of years ago when, when I when I assumed the role of, of chair is we started to look at Weedy more from a perspective of, of that role as convener, of that role of being able to look at the business issues across the industry and frankly, moving probably away from our roots of being only involved in EDI. And we've seen the, the industry transform too, right? We've got FireNow, um, you know, we've got APIs, we've got you know, all kinds of technology that's in front of us and, and probably things we haven't even contemplated. So I think it's important for Weedy, which we started to do and have done, to move away from just being singularly focused and being more um, focused on how we can use the strength of this group of people to solve the real problems from a business perspective, regardless of the technology involved.
1: Very good. So it's almost like Weedy as a tool was very useful in the HIPAA years. Uh, to think through that and to advise the secretary in that, and and says because it's such a good tool, we can now apply it to other IT health IT issues. That's kind of what I'm hearing, right?
2: Yeah, and you know what's interesting. I mean, I, I people probably get sick of me saying this, but you know, I I, I talk about you know when we we think of IBM, hardly anybody I think anymore thinks of okay international business machines. What what is a business machine? Yeah. You know, um, and so we're we're sort of the same way, right? It was like okay electronic data interchange, which was great. But we're, we're way beyond that. So now we really are we. That, that's who we are. That's, that's our identity. Um, and our roots were great, but it's time to look more forward. Right,
1: great. Thank you, Jay. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Jay Eisenstock, current and outgoing chair of the Weedy Board of Directors. For now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer, Michael McNutt.
0: The preeminent national membership association for health IT guidance and collaboration, Weedy has earned the title of being an instrumental force in engaging public and private partnerships, facilitating discussions, and providing a collaborative voice as a national healthcare advisor to provide meaningful changes for the American healthcare system. Become a member and provide national leadership that enhances the exchange of clinical and administrative healthcare information. Join one of our various work groups where Weedy members collect input, exchange ideas, and make recommendations that inspire impactful and far reaching change in our industry. Learn more about how you can make a difference at weedy.org.
1: We're back and we're talking with Jay Eisenstock, current and now outgoing chair of the Weedy Board of Directors, on another episode of the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. So Jay, uh, in the context of health IT, we've had uh, we've had a, a bit of a, a, a test <laughs> uh, to our society, to our economy, to our healthcare industry with this pandemic. Uh, what do you think in this pandemic maybe first, maybe uh, w- what prepared us as a healthcare industry for this pandemic that maybe we wouldn't have had a few years ago, especially in the realm of health IT? And then the, the other end of that question is, um, what may we have, or what, what can we aspire to in the next couple of years, which make us better prepared, uh, should God forbid anything like this happen again?
2: yeah, so I think first and foremost um, and I, I think we, we can't under uh, underestimate this is that the, the technology was here to be able to do so much remotely and um, you know, I, I think obviously for healthcare that made a huge difference, but, but probably for most other industries, if you think about it, everybody's working remotely now. And, you know, where some companies clearly said they're we're never going to have work at home. Everything Everybody has to be in the office. I mean, all that was dispelled because of the pandemic. Um, sort of an interesting antidote um, regarding telehealth. When I was with Aetna, one of the areas that I had responsibility for was, was telehealth. And... You know, if you go back, uh, what I like to call BC before COVID, um, you know, telehealth was a great idea. Uh, everybody in the industry thought that it had some opportunity, but utilization was not good at all. People that actually used telehealth thought, "Gee, it was a good experience," but but not something they thought of. Right? If, if someone was feeling ill or had a child that was ill, the first call would be to the doctor, or go to urgent care, the you know, emergency department, or whatever telehealth just was not getting the traction. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and telehealth goes literally through the roof. And it's almost like the industry said, told yourself that, that you know, we have the ability to radically change and frankly improve healthcare and here's a perfect demonstration of it. And I think as a result, um, we now as consumers slash patients, um, will look for telehealth, that, that doctors who may have avoided it in the past are now know that they can't get out of using it, that it's beneficial in so many ways for everybody. So, you know, that is definitely a success story in
1: terms of the pandemic. Good, good. And And you touched on consumer health. How do you think the pandemic, or even you know the way health IT was progressing in the first place, um, how do you think that has has added to or taken away from the idea of a consumer driven healthcare?
2: So in in you know consumer driven healthcare has a lot of connotations to it, right? It, it, it's about okay people being responsible for their own health decisions, you know whatever that means. And, you know, the other way to look at that, too, is also, well, by the way, responsible also means financially responsible. Um, But I think what we are starting to see, and I don't know that the the pandemic paused this or not, but what we're starting to see is maybe an evolution, as I just referred to as the patient as consumer. Right. That, you know, uh, people want. More tools and understanding about their healthcare to make wise decisions. And that doesn't mean that, you know, healthcare is Amazon, like some people have predicted. You know, I can't imagine anybody that says, okay, uh, for a good time on a Saturday night, let's go to urgent care. It doesn't happen. You know, healthcare is very personal, uh, it's about yourself or your family or a loved one. Um, often it's, you know, through, you know, Horrific circumstances, whether they're dealing with an illness or, or some other thing, so people are not engaging in healthcare in a way that they would with a, with an Amazon or some other you know cool website. But they want information, and you know one of the things that I think about, and, and maybe I'm going down a path you don't necessarily want me to go. So just pull me back if it makes sense, Michael. But okay. um, you know, if you think about every you know November or so when people are looking to to. Um, decide on their health plans. Well, again, most people, for those of us who, who are not involved in this every day, you know, look at the brochures, may go online. Probably are going to focus on the plan that costs the least, and that's about as much time and effort they're going to put into it. But what if, and certainly we're getting there now, is that if I'm on a medication, let's say I'm on a you know a heart medication, um, what if I could go to a website? And based on this exact medication or medications that I'm taking that I could find a plan tailored to my needs, that would be worthwhile. That would be helpful. And all the other information about costs and so on. But the fact that it's tailored to what I'm looking for, to me, is a game changer. And that that's how we get into consumerism where it makes starts to make sense. That's just one example.
1: Right. That's, that's a good example. It, uh, uh- <laughs> It, the analogy I'm thinking about is a, a dating app where you, right, you put in the characteristics of yourself and then it comes up with a, what it thinks to be a good match for you. Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, to, to get to around to the second half of, of the question, um, what do you think um, the pandemic did in terms of lying bare some of the weaknesses of our healthcare industry? And, and you know, I, I, I I I always uh, are cautious of asking answering asking this question right because uh, I was it was very impressive how quickly um, the the healthcare industry, you know, pivoted to telehealth, um, how agile they they responded to uh, this pandemic. Um, uh, Operation Warp Speed has been an amazing collaboration between um, commercial uh, interest and commercial innovation and government uh, policy. Um, So I I think the healthcare industry has done nothing but amazing things, but um, what could we do better uh, to better prepare us uh, for maybe the next time this happens.
2: So one of the positive things that happened is, is across the industry, both, you know, commercial and government payers, um, relaxed requirements for, um, patient responsibilities, copays, and, and need to meet the deductible, et cetera, especially for telehealth. Um, also relaxed, frankly, you know, some of the, the, the HIPAA regulations around privacy, allowing things like, you know, a zoom to be used. um, and so on, but I think one of the things that that points out, and oh, and another thing, also important to what I'm about to talk about, is also allowed physicians um, to be paid at the um, at the same rate whether they're doing something you know in person or through telehealth, and that's probably all going to go back to the way it was. And I think what it lays bare, using your term uh, Matthew, is the fact that you know while we did those things. I think that points out some of the real issues that we have in healthcare: why people aren't engaging, Giddy Jane. Um, because of the, the pressures of the cost, because of the fact that, you know, some of these systems just, you know, aren't in place and so they need to be relaxed in order to solve it for the pandemic. So then what's the implication going forward? Can we fix some of these things? Can we make this a smoother, more efficient process? I'd, I'd like to think so.
1: Good. So that, that's interesting because you're, you're looking at the um – uh, the almost the regulatory framework um uh, because that's certainly one of the things that shifted for telehealth and kind of opened up telehealth and and certainly the providers jumped into that that um that opportunity that the the legislation opening up the legislation offered them is there anything in health IT itself is there anything that we need to do um as an industry and on and on, and maybe even on the commercial side in order to get our, our health IT up to speed or to or change something within healthcare um, to improve it.
2: Yeah. And so another area, and there's probably a lot of things, but just things that I'm thinking about is we, we think about like, for example, like contact tracing, right? Is We're trying to, to um, be able to monitor what's happening with the, with the pandemic nationwide. There, there aren't great systems in place for, for doing that. and And that wouldn't only be the case for the pandemic, but, Again, the, the, the IT solutions people have talked about, they're not integrated. You know, we, we use that four-letter word interoperability, but interoperability in this case is really important if you think about it. The, being able to get things like test results um, accurately to the right place at the right time to be able to figure out who has the disease and where and do all that analytical work um, it, is critical. And, you know, so that's something that, that certainly has come up short because we weren't ready for it, frankly.
1: Right. So what I'm hearing is we've got we collect a lot of data in healthcare, and what what maybe interoperability will help with, or or you know legislative commercial pushes towards interoperability will be the ability to, to share all this data that's being collected constantly. I think your contact tracing is a good example. Exactly. Good. So. Um, you know, here, here's a here's a opportunity for you to um, uh, to to fantasize with us here, uh, Jay. What what do you think healthcare is going to look like in five to ten years? Um, are we going to be you know just doing telehealth a little bit more, or do you see um, do you see any real like revolutions in in how we either do
2: business or
1: how do we deliver care?
2: So I I think. The short answer is yes, and let me elaborate on a couple of things. I mean, you know, clearly uh, what the pandemic showed, we talked about, is telehealth is here to stay, um, and that's a, that's a good thing. But there's also many aspects of telehealth. The telehealth we've been talking about is, uh, you know, what I would term as virtual visits. But also what's sort of been happening, and I think we're going to see much more of it, is, you know, this whole concept of remote patient monitoring. You know, to being able to look at devices in people's homes and, and helping people that have chronic conditions manage those conditions appropriately and adequately. Um, there's great opportunity there, opportunity for, for patients to improve their health for sure. And, you know, it goes back to that data issue, right, that we have to be able to take this data and be able to use it. And, you know, so that's that's one thing. And then the other thing that, that's starting to happen, which also is a good thing, You know, the the different um, places for encounters are changing as well. You know, we're seeing this a little bit with pharmacies, and I think we're going to continue to see that with pharmacies and Walmarts and and, and everything else where, you know, some healthcare services can be performed more and more uh, out of the hospital setting and, frankly, sometimes out of the physician's office setting. You know, those are some areas where I think we're going to see the change that, you know, this factory that we called or referred to as a hospital is going to change radically and dramatically over the next several years. That's my thought anyway. No, I think that's
1: fascinating. And that kind of, um, it kind of aligns with a theme that we've talked about, or at least touched on with a few, few speakers on this, on this program. And that's, you know, that this is actually going across many Institutions which up till now have have needed the building, have needed the four walls, or have have relied on the four walls and defined themselves by the four walls. And you talk about a hospital and healthcare facilities. This is happening with uh, our restaurants, right, where they've shifted to. Um, you, you don't have to go into a restaurant to have good food because they'll deliver it to you in the uh, uh, in your uh, on your front porch and uh, and also education. Uh, right. Um, I'm sure. And, and certainly my children hope that we'll all get back into uh, um, the classroom or uh, see other students soon. But it, it feels as though we'll never quite get back to depending on those four walls as defining important institutions. And, and that
2: goes for employment, too. That's right. Yeah. Very, very true. And I think that's another shift we looked at, you know, telehealth and what that means, you know, up until actually certainly still now. The way physicians are licensed, right, it's by state. So, you know, the the telehealth companies would have to have uh, different contracts for different physicians, you know, in different states. And so now there's been talk about changing that so that, you know, if I'm a physician, I can practice virtually, you know, anywhere. Um, And I think that's a game changer as well.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. And and again, we're talking about artificial borders, artificial walls, artificial boundaries right between states, because uh, once you uh, once you go digital, uh, none of those things matter. Right. None of those things exactly. are, are, are obstacles. Very good. Uh, I very much appreciate this discussion, Jay. Uh, before we leave, do you have any resources uh, that you'd like to uh, send our listeners to or or any um, any anything else that you'd like to direct uh, listeners to find more information about some of the things we've talked about
2: so so yeah thanks for that Matthew so so one major thing that that Weedy does it does extremely well and I, I think we've adapted uh, well through this you know virtual world as we've been talking about is our webinars our forums that are available virtually um, certainly for our members but but some things that we've offered uh, to, to non-members as well and we this week we had a, a, an amazing webinar on ransomware which is certainly been a been a big deal across the industry Had a huge attendance uh, the program was held in conjunction with some government officials and some commercial folks very successful it's available uh, for anybody you don't have to be a member of weedy uh, if you go online to weedy.org you can find it there and you also find other resources that Weedy's made available uh, to to not only our members but the, the general public at large and also an opportunity to learn more about weedy and who we are and what we can do
1: Thank you, Jay. We're definitely going to take a look at that ransomware uh, webinar. I heard the, the speakers were fabulous. And, and certainly, as, as you say, it's a re- great reflection of Wheedy of where government uh, officials come and talk about it from a regulatory and policy standpoint, and the commercial uh, sector comes and talks about how they're being affected by all this. So very much appreciate you uh, dropping by, Jay, and talking to, with us today. Thank you very much, Matthew. I really enjoyed it. Perfect. We've been talking to Jay Eisenstock, chair of the Weedy Board of Directors. And one of Weedy's primary functions is to keep health plans and hospitals and other providers educated on health IT. Very much uh, Jay Eisenstock helping Weedy do that today. This has been the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.